I love that man. And it's been about, it's been in the 40s years ago. <laughs> been a while. Man. <sighs> I'm so glad to be here. Did I tell you I love that guy? I remember their family in Missouri. We got on a bus one time when you were pastoring in Missouri and rode down there. And I still have that image in my mind. Took a picture of the whole family out in front of the church building. You were pastoring there. Was it Fairview or something? Fair Grove. Fair Grove. Grove. Long time ago. Every every time I come here, off and on over the years, I talk about this is the guy I wanted to preach like. Like... Brother Dave Stone, a mentor. Ah, um, there's no possible way I can communicate to you what I need to communicate to you tonight in one service. You're saying, uh-oh. But this has been an evolution for me. You say, you believe in evolution? Well, this kind, I do. Yeah, I do. We change over time and we learn and grow. I was... Um, Influenced early in my life by an atheist, my grandfather. He was an intellectual atheist. He wasn't an angry man. A lot of folks that are tied into atheism over the years I've met are angry. He wasn't angry, and he he actually taught me a lot. I would sit at his feet, and he would teach me. I wasn't in church far from Christianity. But one of the things he told me was that truth, he, he said, my name's actually not Larry, it's Lawrence. In West Texas, that's Lawrence. So he would say, Lawrence, truth doesn't belong to us. He said, truth is out here. It's away from us. Whether we live or die, truth remains the same. Now, this is, this is a philosophical atheist saying this, and he's right. Whether we live or die, truth remains the same. And <clears throat> he said, anytime you see a man that gets angry about what he believes, something's wrong with that man because the truth doesn't belong to him. And he said a lot of people quit growing in their lives. And, you, you know, he, he would read the Bible. He was not opposed to learning and growing. And what he taught me was, was to continue to grow, continue to let um, truth influence me. And for me, it's been God. He wasn't even angry whenever I chased a girl to church and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my life was changed forever. Uh, but he didn't stop questioning me with some very hard questions over time. And I actually appreciate that. So I'm here as a product of sort of God's metamorphosis. And that's what I, I, this, this is not just me. In fact, it's not about me. I'm not a missionary. So get that out of your mind. I'm not a missionary. This is different than, than what you've heard before. I'm not here as a missionary. I'm not here seeking your support for me. Um, I am here for a completely different reason. Relating to independent Baptist in general and as a whole, for for about oh the last twelve years or so, the church that I pastored, uh, we uh, we were given by God's grace an awesome ministry, which you folks support called Amazing Grace Children's Home. I mean, Brother Leonardo Rebus, the director of the home, you've probably heard the story. He walked. He just he says when God saved him, he changed his heart and his eyes. And he started seeing something as a upper middle class uh, doctor, Mexican doctor in the, one of the largest cities in the world. He started seeing something that he had just kind of ignored before, and that was all the kids on the street. 
he went to a, a place to donate his time, kind of an alcoholics clinic, and um, he, had, he had been an alcoholic till God saved him. And he saw four girls there. The oldest one, Blanca, was nine, and they went all the way down to Vicky, who was two, four sisters. He said, what are these girls doing here? He said, ah, they're just street kids. We let them sleep here at night. And if you knew the circumstances of where they were sleeping at night, you would just... He said, we let them sleep here at night, and then they go out on the street and beg during the day. He said, not tonight. He said, you bring them to my house. And so those were the first four that he took off the street. And he just started taking them, taking them in. Before he came up for water and looked around, he realized they don't need a doctor, they need a dad. So he gave up his career and, there, he gave, and his wife, a nurse, they gave up their careers, and they started rescuing kids. And they, they had more than the kids have, so they started putting them in their home. Then when the home was too large, he took what money he had left. He bought his partners out of a clinic they were building, just the first floor done. And he started moving kids into there, sleeping on the floor, but it's better than sleeping out there. And teaching them about Jesus. Uh, the church that he was attending told him he could come, but not his street kids. So he was without a church for two years, living by faith, knowing that the Christianity that he was engaged in was what real Christianity really is. And, and, you know, and I met him. They were barely making it. I was at a conference down in Mexico, and this girl stood up and started singing, and it was a voice that I, 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 it was Blanca, which, by the way, Blanca, the oldest one, she's now married to a Baptist pastor, and she's expecting her second child. Ah, God's amazing, isn't he? So I just, I did the same thing as a pastor of a church. They needed a sponsoring church. They needed somebody that cares about them. So we just waited in and we had no idea what we were doing. He didn't have any idea what he was doing. We were just following the direction of our Lord and Savior. So we just waited in and we were up to here. And I realized all of a sudden that we as independent Baptists have some serious problems we got logistical problems for this kind of ministry. The two are not compatible. Um, and they are, really. They are. But it's because we've lost something. Uh, we've lost sight of something that is profoundly biblical. And it's not the first time. You realize there was a time when there were no Baptist missionaries? No. They, that we know of in the English-speaking world. No Baptist missionaries. Until some preachers in England got together and started asking questions. One of them's name was uh, Andrew Fuller. Another one was uh, William Carey. You've probably heard of him. And they, they started asking questions about the Bible. Isn't the Great Commission for us today? Uh, William, uh, Brother Fuller got up in a preacher's conference and said that, and one of the older preachers told him he was an enthusiast and to shut up and sit down, basically, because they'd never done it before. But William Carey went to India and was the first missionary of the modern era. And we didn't even have any missionaries out of the United States. A congregationalist team left these shores to go to Burma via India. And the leader of that team, Adoniram Judson, he was a Greek scholar. And he, while he was on ship go, heading to India, he was reading his Greek New Testament. And he came to the belief that uh, baptizing infants is not biblical. That believer's baptism is biblical, and what these Baptists have been preaching is actually true. So by the time he got to India, he was a Baptist. And so he was the first Baptist missionary out of the United States of America. There weren't any missionaries. Our, our brethren were blinded at that time. 
And, and thankfully, William Carey and his team was there to baptize Adoniram Judson and his team. The Brits actually baptized in India our first missionary. And a guy named Luther Rice was sent back here to the United States to raise funds for missionaries. So started missions in the United States. But we were blind to this stuff until then. And so taking on a children's home as a church, one of the things we realized is Dr. Rivas down there, he's got 40 to 60 kids. He's up to hearing kids that are, that are kids who have been abused. They're street kids. I mean, they're, he, he's taking them in. If we told them tomorrow we can, we'll open our doors to full capacity, which is 120, they would bring them to us, which is another thing. The, I, I've never been involved in a ministry where people bring you people. I mean, bring you these kids. We, we've got kids that are preaching. We've got kids that, we got one kid that is begging God to send him to the mission field right now. Surrender to preach, finish his education, he's ready to go, and he wants to go to the mission field out of this ministry. So one thing is, I mean, he can't come back and do deputation. How do you do that? It'd take a pretty big bus for 40 to 60 kids, and you'd have to have a big issue with the, with the government to bring these kids in here. And wouldn't you like to host 40 or 60 kids here for a week or something? I mean, the, 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 you, you'd love it, but the expense is, is outrageous and the ability to do that. And he can't leave these kids and come up here. And I've been told this by missionary after missionary. So for us, I mean, once you start raising funds for a children's home, where do you stop? When you stop, when you back out, you can't, uh, there's nothing else that, I mean, the kids, they're on the streets. So for us, as a pastor of a church, I had my, I had my, my senior pastor hat on when I would preach in the pulpit Sunday morning. Then I'd go get in a car or get on a, get in a plane and I'd go somewhere else to try to raise support. And then what we would run into when we go into the churches, they would think this is missions and not benevolence. So we'd get $50 here and $75 there and it takes $150 a child per month to care for one child, and that's on the edge. I mean, you start thinking about medical, you start thinking about uh, education, uh, glasses, clothes, the list goes on, and it's nonstop. You, you get 50 kids, how many, three, three meals a day, how many meals a day is that? 50 kids, calculate it, it's easy. 50 times three, 150. We're fixing 150 meals a day. Think about the grocery list. I mean, this is, this is a complexity that is that's just amazing. So as a church, our church was actually harmed. They didn't have a senior pastor. Thankfully, my son-in-law was there. He's been working with me for 20 years. And uh, he was, I would say, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. I'd, and, and then churches stop Sunday evening services. So I have to go out on Sunday mornings uh, once a month. And our church was actually harmed. And then something else started, which I'll tell you here in a moment. But one of the things I learned Going out to churches over the last 12 years, I only went to two churches that supported children, homeless children, two, among independent Baptists. And as a pastor in Louisiana told me just a few weeks ago, he said, I always knew we needed to be involved in this, but we didn't have an opportunity. He said, I'm a church guy. I'm not a parachurch guy. He said, you know, we, we need to be doing this through the Lord's churches. And the Lord's churches can do it. And he hit the nail right on the head. He did. And then, then, in kind of keeping with my atheist grandfather, talking about truth not being ours, I, I learned when I came into Christianity um, that people raised in Christianity, a lot of the time, just read through their Bibles and miss a lot of it. I don't know how that happens. I wasn't raised in church. Don't, 
Don't know. I know a lot of the kids in the youth group that I was saved into, they spent their time writing notes and slipping them, hiding them so their parents wouldn't see and doing stuff like that, not really paying attention. I think a lot of people walk through life not paying attention to the Scriptures. I had a friend of mine recently, a pastor friend, he said, he said, Larry, you wouldn't see things the way you see them if it, if it wasn't for your background. And he's absolutely right. I was born to an unwed mother, adopted into a family that was disintegrating. My, my, the, the man I get the name Jones from called me a bastard child, said I had bad blood, didn't want me in his house. They divorced over me, so they say. And even, even when I was 35 years old, when he blew his brains out, the family blamed me because they say I destabilized the family and him and led to his ultimate suicide. I mean, that's the nutcase kind of world that, that I, I came into. And I, I you know, as, as far as seeing things the way um, people that are raised in a Christian culture see things, I can tell you I don't. Okay? But you need me. You need people like me. A Christianity without people like me that come out of a world that don't know anything about Christianity and they find Jesus Christ... We, the, uh, the, the Lord's churches have to have us. Whether you're raised in church or not, we need each other, don't we? That's what I told him. I said, the reason you don't see the, the Bible in the way I see it is because of your background. So we need each other. And when it comes to the Scripture, there may be things that we see that we look at that we got to step back and say, man, I, you know, a lady that I've known for years, when we went through some of the Scriptures we're about to go through, she walked out of the service, one of the, I mean, she's a great Bible student, and she had tears streaming down her face. She said, I've never even seen those verses before. So there, there is, when, I have, I have a book in my library, it's called uh, Baptist in the Balance, and it's, I believe that's the name of it. it it's some people who actually look at Baptists, kind of like, they look at us like, what are these people? And I, I've read this in a number of books, as they observe us, one thing that they that is characteristic about us that they don't find in many other groups of Christians, and it is that Baptists are New Testament people. I mean, Brother Stone, I know him. He doesn't step up here and spend his time talking about what Dr. Humpenstubble 200 years ago had to say about the Bible and we believe Dr. Humpenstubble, does he? He goes back to Jesus, doesn't he? He goes back to the Bible and he preaches the Bible. We jump over almost 2,000 years and go back to the Bible. And we call ourselves New Testament Christians and we call our churches New Testament churches. And that's what they observe about us. We are people of the Bible. But we have to ask ourselves, while we may understand the doctrine of the Bible and the teaching of the Bible, do we think like these people thought? Are we like those New Testament Christians? And I say in some ways we're not. And we can see how they think. Let me, let's, let's look at some of these passages and uh, see how these people actually think. I was, I was not thinking correctly. I mean, look at this. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 2. We're going to be moving through a lot of scriptures, and I'll throw them up here just so you can uh, keep up with me. And you're welcome to look in your Bibles, obviously, while we go through this. This is Jesus speaking. And the Sermon on the Mount where he just shreds us. If you get to the Sermon on the Mount... And you think you're righteous after you get through it, after you get through reading it. You didn't read it. I mean, he just strips you of all your self-righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> but look at what he says here in this first phrase. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, whatever alms are, whatever, whatever it is, it's obvious here that Jesus expects that his followers are just going to be doing this. In fact... If you're not doing this, whatever this alms is, and by the way, it's giving to the poor. 
That's what alms is. It is deliberate giving to the poor. It's not missions. It's not tithe. It's actually the New Testament and Old Testament system of taking care of the poor. But he takes for granted here that his disciples do alms. So, in his mind, the way he thought, the way Jesus thought, and the disciples sitting there, they would all look at each other and say, okay, he's talking to us because we give alms. So the question is, do we think like they thought? If Jesus were standing here today and said, when you do your alms, would you say, uh, uh, what? Or you have to ask yourself the question, do I do this? When thou doest thine alms, he says, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do. So if you don't give alms, if you don't give to the poor, if you're not engaged in this, then this verse is not even related to you, and you're not even on the level of the hypocrites that are being discussed here. It's, it's irrelevant to you. Because for Jesus, it was in his mind. And, and if, you, if you go on, he'll say, let not your right hand know what your left hand does. I, first time I saw that, and I, this is, this is a, I mean, I came from out in the world, and a lot of the stuff I've seen in Christianity, I've said, that's weird. You know, I look at what Christians do, and I say, man, that's strange. And I look at this, and I say, well, that's weird. Your left hand not knowing what your right hand does, that was really complicated for me, because my left hand and my right hand are connected by my brain. So, it's, it's, I could not figure out when I first saw that. How in the world does this happen? Your left hand not knowing what your right hand doing, does or your right hand, they're connected to the same brain. Well, this is actually a colloquial way of Jesus speaking that people there would understand. It was a phrase that they would understand. And it's real easy for you to understand if you think about it for a second. I've been doing this. My left hand doesn't know what my right hand's doing. You see what I'm doing? I was, years ago, I was in homiletics at the Independent Baptist College, and Wendell McCarg, my instructor, he, he said, he gave me an A. He, he would break down your preaching. That's what, it's in homiletics, they break down your preaching, and he, he gave me an A on gesturing, and I thought, man, I didn't even know I gestured. <laughs> it's involuntary with me. It's not as bad as this woman, that, or girl, she's kind of 20-something, 20s and 30s, you're girls to me, okay? She was, uh, I mean, my, my daughter's in her 30s. So she, I saw her driving. She had her phone right here and her hand going like this, you know, and she was driving. That's, that's involuntary gesturing. What that illustration was intended, what Jesus intends by that illustration is that not letting our left hand know what our right hand does, it is so native to us that we don't even think about it. He's telling us that giving to the poor is so much, should be so much a part of what it means to be a Christian that you don't go, oh yeah, man, I, I gave to that poor person. I actually gave, it's, it's natural to you. It is native to you. It's like breathing. But that's foreign to us. I mean, as far as practice is concerned, it's just foreign. It, 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 it wasn't in my thinking. Look at this one. This, you know the beautiful picture of the alabaster box of ointment? You all know the story? Where this woman who was forgiven of her sins, and you can experience it, can't you? She was forgiven of her sins, and she came to Jesus. I mean, we write songs about it. It's amazing. She poured this expensive ointment as an offering to Jesus Christ. And like, what was taking place, there were multiple scenes going on here. There's that scene in Scripture but then there's the disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ, sitting there watching what was going on. 
and thinking as they were taught to think. You say, taught to think? Well, let's look at what, when they saw this beautiful picture of this woman pouring out of this very expensive box, this ointment on Jesus, look at what they thought. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation. Indignation. In, in our modern terminology, that would be like, who do, what, has she lost her mind? I mean, the, the term here translated indignation actually has a facial feature to it. It's like you've smelled something really bad. This woman is crazy. We sit back and look at it and say, oh, how beautiful it is. But uh, the disciples at that time, the way they thought, this woman is, I mean, they had indignation that she would actually do this. Why? Look at what it says. They had indignation saying, to what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and what? Given to the poor. So, they were running a calculation in their mind. And you say, well, where could this come from? Well, they don't think like Americans think. Poor to us is the person down here in Houston, or, I mean, it's all over the Houston-Galveston area, on the, on, the, on the median there, walking up and down with their sign, and you're saying, I'm not going to give them any money, or I don't know if I should, I think they're thieves, you know, they're just, they're lazy or whatever. You're running through this conflict in your mind, and and... You know, have the sign. That's poverty to us. But to these guys, you read the New Testament, that wasn't poverty. Poverty to them is what happened everywhere Jesus went. When people heard, when when a husband of a wife that is suffering, or a, a father or a mother of a child that's suffering, or a parent that's suffering, when they heard that Jesus was five miles away, they would do everything they could to get their suffering family or or get this this family member to Jesus. So these disciples, they saw what humanity was was really like. They had a god kind of view of humanity when all these people would and the poor and I mean they saw it as it really was. And that puts a weight on somebody. Believe me, it's a burden. It's a weight on you. I I was talking to it's been interesting since we've entered into this ministry of I was talking to a guy that's a mega, I mean, the guy's got millions of dollars, and he was talking to me about all this, and I said, and i, I got to tell you, the church of Jesus Christ needs to speak to the rich and the poor the same way. It shouldn't matter how much money you have. Truth is truth, isn't it? And I told him, I said, you know what the problem is here? You've never held a homeless child in your arms. He said, yep, that's right. I said, you need to hold a homeless child in your arms. You need to go with me. He said, no, I'm not going to do it. You know what it's like to be holding a 24-month-old little boy or little girl like this that you know wouldn't, wouldn't be cared for if they weren't in this place? If they weren't cared for by these people who have sacrificed their lives and their careers to reach these kids? I mean, you're, you're talking about a burden of the world being placed upon someone. And you just don't get over it. So when those disciples, when those disciples were sitting there looking at this, what was happening inside them was those people 
How many children could we feed with, with that ointment? How I mean, as a pastor, 34 years as a senior pastor, I never once heard an argument in a church. I, and I heard a lot of arguments. I pastored tw- troubled churches for 20 years. I lost my mind. I thought God wanted me to do it. Now I'm not so sure after I did it. I, never, I was never a party to a, an argument in a church listening to it all go, go on where they said, you know, we shouldn't be spending that money this way. We should be giving it to the poor. And I've heard arguments over the color of carpet going into a church. I hope you all haven't argued over that. If you have, I didn't know about it, okay? You know what happens to us? We argue about things here. I mean, we argue about drums in a church. We argue about music. We we argue about all kinds of stuff because it makes us feel like we're really Christian. And that's what we want, isn't it? So we argue about what goes on in here so we don't have to be faced with what's really going on out there. With what they argue, you know what they argue about when it comes to homeless children? They argue about whether there is a hundred million or not. Did you get that number? A hundred million children sleeping on the streets tonight. And we're here comfortable. Hey, preacher, that's not my problem. Well, when it comes to the New Testament, these people This is the way they thought. And the question is, are you thinking like they thought? Now, this is this is when uh, Jesus and Judas moving toward the crucifixion. Judas and Jesus were talking. Judas came up. Jesus was talking. And what I want you to see here is not so much what they were talking, but what was in the minds of the people who were watching this. Look at it. He says, for some of them thought that is the disciples. These are disciples again. Some of them thought because Judas had the bag. That means he was the treasurer. Sorry, whoever the treasurer is. I mean, Judas was the treasurer. I know you've heard it, and I've I've served with some Judases in treasury, and I've served with some amazing Christian people. But Judas was here. He held the bag. And so he was the treasurer, and so they they saw them talking, and they, they were thinking that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should what? When's the last time you saw one of your pastors talking to the treasurer here, and what popped into your mind was they were probably talking about giving something to the poor? They may have been. But I'm talking about the culture that we're in and the way we think. Is this foreign thinking to us? Can we really say we think like New Testament Christians if poverty doesn't come anywhere into our minds? I mean, when when I was representing the children's home a number of years ago, I was in a a, a meeting and a bunch of preachers were there. And I said, you know, a bunch of you guys, I didn't call them blowhards because I am one, you know, I can't, I'm a pastor. And I I said, I said, some of you guys, and I was thinking that some of you, some of you stiff shirts or you stand up and you preach against abortion like crazy. I mean, you get you just get all leathered up and you're against abortion and you've never given a dime to the to a child that wasn't aborted but is now homeless. And a pastor, year, years, this guy's been in the ministry for years. They they asked him to close in prayer and this guy broke up and was crying and saying, "God forgive me. I'm one of those. I've never given a dime to a homeless child." Forgive me. It's the way we think. Are we thinking like those New Testament Christians? Do we, do we, you say, I hope he's done. No, I'm not done. 
Y'all know Zacchaeus, wee little guy. But he was a wee little rich guy. Had a lot of money. This is one of those areas where you, you, you just kind of read over. I mean, look at what it says of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus stood. This is after Jesus said that we're going to eat together today, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, I give half of my goods, or the half of my goods I give to the who? The poor. When's the last time you heard somebody who trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior who said, I'm going to give the half of my goods to feed the poor? It's not even in our culture. It's not even in our thinking. But what, what was going on with this guy to where that's what was in his mind when he came into Christianity? You know, there have been, if, if you go back in church history, uh, Baptist church history, you'll bump into a guy named Peter Waldo that some of the Protestant historians will tell us that Peter Waldo was the founder of the Waldensians. He wasn't, but that's what they say. But P- Peter Waldo was a Waldensian. He came out of Roman Catholicism and he was a very rich man. And what he faced was the scriptures. Some of the scriptures we're looking at tonight. And in his riches, he realized that this was almost a god to him. I mean, we still have some of his writings. And so what he did was he emptied himself of all of this. He gave his life to God. He took care of his wife financially, or she would be cared for, because the scriptures require it. And then he began giving away all of his riches. When was the last time you heard of that happening among Christians? We in America, we think differently than what a large body of Christians have thought over the years. I mean, here is Zacchaeus. Can, can you imagine that, brother? That somebody comes down the aisle and says, I'm trusting Christ today, and I want you to know I'm giving half of everything I have to the poor. Wow. What? And then the question would be, how do you do that in one of the Lord's churches? And that's what we run, in, run into, actually, the logistical issues of this. And, and I mean... Here, here is the key. This is, uh, Peter Waldo, th- this verse just overwhelmed him as far as who Christ is and what Jesus Christ did. Look at, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For ye know the grace. He's actually, right here, he is actually talking about giving to the poor. In fact, most of the New Testament passages the, that are talking about giving are actually talking about giving to the poor in their primary interpretation. It is a secondary application to apply it to tithing and other things, which we more commonly do than the primary application. And a lot of folks don't even know that's the primary interpretation of the verse. So here's what he's talking about. He's talking about giving to the poor. And the Apostle Paul says this as defense of doing this. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, How rich was he? You know, this is another one of those passages where we know what the New Testament Christians thought. For this verse to be written like Paul wrote it, he had to believe and it had to be common that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. That he pre-existed his birth in a manger and into poverty. So it is understood that in the thinking of the Apostle Paul, Jesus was the incarnate Son of God that existed in eternity. Somewhere, 
somewhere beyond all that He has created. And even saying somewhere, He transcends the where. He transcends time. He transcends space. But we don't, so we have to use those words to express who He is and where He is. Somewhere in the eternity beyond what we can understand, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit dwelt. And they knew, they saw, because they were there that Adam and Eve would fall. And it is unthinkable. It is unreasonable. It is beyond all of our understanding that the very Son of God gave Himself at that time. I will be, uh, there will be a body made for me. And I will go into that body And I will walk on that earth among them in poverty, not having a home, not having a place to lay my head, and I shall die on the cross for their sins and iniquities. That's the gospel, isn't it? That is our salvation. And He rose again from the dead to do what for us? To make us richer than you can ever imagine on this planet earth. I mean, when I'm going through the struggles of life and I have Jesus Christ as my Savior, here in my mind, this is what I do. I think of my footprint on the new earth. That's what I think of. One of these days, that's going to be real. I'm going to take my toes in a glorified body and I'm going to rub them around in that soil on that new earth. And I don't care if I shovel the manure of the horses on heaven Heaven's new earth. It, it, it is, it is glory for me. It is just to be there to know I have life everlasting. And it was bought for me, paid for by this one who left the riches of glory and went into poverty. I mean, Paul tells us, doesn't he? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is him. And this, this Paul says, yet for your sakes he became poor that ye through his poverty might be rich and and, and i mean there's 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 verse after verse when you start looking at this it's all through the bible this, Paul's continuing to deal with this issue, and he uses it as an example. As it is written, he, which, which is Jesus, hath dispersed abroad, he hath done what? Given to the poor. Just, just take your concordance out and follow the term poor. I mean, in this passage of Scripture in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9, this is when the apostles to the Jews um, met with Paul and Barnabas. And gave them the right hand of Christian fellowship. It says right there, kind of right in the middle. They gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. So you have these, these servants of Christ meeting together. And, and the, the apostles that walked with Jesus while he was here on the earth meeting with Paul and Barnabas. But what they say in verse 10, look at it. Only they would that we should remember the poor, which perhaps we have forgotten. What this meant for Paul was, and look at at what he says, he said, the same which I also was forward to do. What this means for the Apostle Paul was that um, in every church that he started, woven into the fabric of that church 
was giving to the poor. I mean, they were talking to a missionary here. So that's why we see this all through the New Testament. It's, it's, it's woven into the thinking. Now, the, now, go back in the Old Testament here, just a few places. And you look at Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel is a, he's a prophet. And what a prophet is doing is he's speaking the words of God. I mean, God is speaking through him. So this is God speaking here. And God is actually speaking about Sodom. What is Sodom known for? I'm asking you. What's Sodom known for? Tell me. When we use the word sodomite today, what are we, what are we talking about? Homosexuality, and we're all against it, aren't we? But look at what God says. He's, he's actually preaching. God is preaching to Israel about Israel's sin, and he says they are worse than sodomites. Go back and read it. He said they're worse than Sodom. And look, look at what he says in this verse. Behold this. Behold. What does this mean? Behold. Look at this. This is God saying, look at this. Behold this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. So he's about to tell us what the iniquity of Sodom is. You know, in none of this does he mention homosexuality. There are precursors to homosexuality. There are things that happen in a culture that produce it. You read Romans chapter 1, homosexuality in a culture like ours is not going to bring judgment. It is judgment. There are worse things than death. I mean, that's what we're taught in the Scriptures. But we, we play all these games. We're against it. We're against it. The problem was there was something that happened in Sodom that produced that kind of corruption and caused, as we find in Romans chapter 1, God to remove His grace from them. And it, we're told it right here. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister, Sodom. Pride. Is there any pride in the United States of America? Are there independent Baptists sitting on church pews that are prideful? Some, what you're doing is you're arguing in your mind with me. You've got to understand, I don't matter. I'm not here looking for your support. I don't matter. I'm a southern preacher. I'm passionate. Blame it on him, okay? My loud voice and my passion, that's the guy right there. I mean, I would say, oh, God, give me the grace to preach like him. I'm not saying I preach like him, but I try. So you can, you can say, oh, I don't like this guy. It doesn't matter about me. Are we reading Scripture here? Is this the Bible? Are we biblical Christians? So, so what's he saying here? Pride? And then look at this next one. Fullness of bread. We got plenty of bread. Any of y'all worried about eating today? Fullness of bread? You say, is that iniquity? It can be. It can be. Especially if we forget where it really comes from. And abundance of idleness. Abundance of idleness. I say this when I get to this verse in, in various places. I say, young people, playing a video game is not work. It's idleness. It's, it's actually air. I mean, they call it cyberspace. It's in your brain. It's just, and you say, are you against this kind of stuff? We're just talking about idleness here. We're, we live in a country that is idle. People work to be idle in this country. Oh, he's talking about Sodom here, though, isn't he? Abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Look at what he says next. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. When Carol and I 
uh, over a year ago, started talking about this transition. For us, it was walking out of pastoral ministry with a disabled wife. My wife's disabled. But we committed to God to do this by faith because we believe this message is profoundly important for our independent Baptist brethren. That, we, that we've been among. We haven't been rejected or kicked when we talk about the children's home, but there's so much more. There is so much more. What we have found is that, that, that we are not engaged in this amazing opportunity of caring for the poor. I mean, we talk about, we look at verses, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked way, you know the story, you know the verse, and we apply it to the United States of America, but there are verses like these that we just kind of read over or ignore. And you look at that Sodom and you, and you look at this one. I mean, look at, look at this. We're going to read a little bit, but I want you to stay with me. I want you to concentrate on this. This is, again, God, through the prophet Isaiah, speaking to Israel who had forsaken him. Behold, ye fast for strife and debate. Hmm. You fight amongst yourselves. And to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day to make your voice be heard on high. Another way of him saying, I'm not going to listen to you. Is it such a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day of the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? Look at this. To loose the bands of wickedness. To undo the heavy burdens. That is to take burdens off of people. And to let the oppressed go free. And that ye break every yoke. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry? And that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy own house? Well, let's, let's not have any of those refugees here. Not? I'll tell you in a moment. There's been no greater day to win Muslims to Christ than now. 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 And if you don't want them coming here, we have an opportunity staring us in the face right now in the Middle East. Arabs winning Arabs to Christ. It's absolutely amazing. When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Look at what he says. You go through and look at the promises in the Scripture to those who actually engage in this. They actually take care of the poor. And, and you might say, well, that's not logical, and it's messy. And i got to tell you, it is messy, and it is unreasonable. But when it comes to God, here, here's the difference between my grandfather's atheism and mine, and you could put it in math. Um, Ten minus one equals what? To my atheist grandfather. Ten minus one equals nine. You know, that's not biblical. Biblical math, because you have a God involved, is different. One of the greatest equations that we have in the Bible is ten minus one is greater than ten. That's called a tithe. That means funds that you actually give away from yourself. You don't control them. You give these funds to God. And what He tells you in that equation is... 10 minus 1 is greater than 10 because there is a God. 
That equation declares there is a God. And when you bring God into the equation, it's not what you think. It's not what the, what the economists think. It's not what the mathematicians think. It's not what the government thinks. It's what God thinks that counts. And He can prosper you or He can take you down to just garbage. He can do it. Because He's God. But you look at this. Then shall thy light break forth as the morning. And thine health shall spring forth speedily. And thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy re-reward. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and He shall say, Here I am. Don't you want God when you cry to Him to say, Here I am? Don't you want our country to know when when we call to God, He says, Here I am, instead of what He's saying to us? How do we get there? The only way we get there is His way, not ours. And He's told us in this passage. He's told us. Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, that is the weight we put on people, the putting forth of the finger and the speaking vanity, and if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity. And thy darkness be as the noonday. And the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones. And thou shalt be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt, rise, thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations. And thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach. The restorer of paths to dwell in. All of the language here means that we lost it somewhere. And we bring it back. People ask me, well, what about the social gospel? Sounds like, you know, the social gospel is, it goes back into the, early part of the centuries when a number of churches that didn't have the gospel anyway, their candlestick was gone, started replacing the gospel with, with uh, caring for the poor. I'm all for caring for the poor, but you don't mistake this, okay? I know what the gospel of Jesus Christ can do. I told you. You have no idea what it did in me beyond my understanding when Jesus Christ saved me and I was given a father. Adopted twice. And my father has never left me. But I, I'll tell you about little Hector. Hector, we, we came into the home, and, and if you go with me, by the way, we're going in August. If you want to go with us, we've, we've got 24 scheduled. We can take 40. We're going to the children's home. It will change your life. If you, so we're taking the group there, and I tell them, I say, these kids have been on the street, you know. Be careful. Warm up to them. They'll warm up to you. In fact, now they know us. They don't just warm up. They just cover you over. I mean, they just, they, they just vibrate for three days before we get there. I mean, you say, what do we do? We just go play with kids. Man, we, we, we do things for them that, they, that if they had parents, their parents would do for them. We, we just have a blast. And we do other things, too. We have, we have church services. And, I mean, it's a great time. But this, this old crusty preacher... Um, one of the kids just just took him on. I mean, all fists and 
feet and stuff. He really kind of deserved it. He's an old grump, you know. But, but anyway, what he did was he went, whoo, to this street kid that had been pimped by his dad. Kid was an animal. I mean, this kid is the most animalistic human being I've ever seen. When I saw this child, when I first saw him, I thought of the maniac of Gadara. You couldn't understand words coming out of his mouth. I mean, he was just a wild kid. Wild. I came back six months later, and this boy had heard the message of Jesus. I've never in my life seen a human being change. And this kid, it's not intellect. This is beyond intellect. This is what God alone can do in the soul of a human being that is so far from Him. It's called regeneration. It is life from the dead. It is light in the darkness. It is God saving our souls. And He did that for Hector. I'm astounded at what He can do. The social gospel, we're the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what started happening. After this metamorph, I mean, as this metamorphosis is going on inside me as a pastor, and I gotta tell you, I'm a radical now. I believe this is, this is what God wants me to do. This isn't retirement. I'm not old enough to retire. I'm like him. Okay. I'm not old enough to retire. He's not. You're not old enough to retire yet, are you? Yeah. This isn't retirement for me. Preacher told me this is a good, um, uh, late ministry for you. Have you lost your mind? No. That's, it, at Rogers, when we announced that we were going to do this, start a charity for independent Baptists, church-based charity, where we come alongside missionaries and, and through their churches. I mean, the whole network's already set up. And these missionaries that, are, that need to reach these people. I mean, we have missionaries telling me, they'd come and sit down with me and say, Larry, when can you do for us what you're doing for Amazing Grace? I mean... Uh, Mohammed Yamut. Mohammed Yamut. He, I, you, do y'all know, you, you know, uh, Brother Abdu Isa? Do y'all support Ab, Abdu Isa? You know him? Great. He, he's, been in, he's been in Lebanon for years and years, uh, winning Muslims to Christ in Lebanon, risking his life. Well, they have missionaries out of their church now. I mean, their mission. They're out of Hillcrest Baptist in El Paso. I'm flying out there Tuesday because of some of the things that have happened. Brother, Brother Isa is back right now just for a few months because he can't leave. Lebanon has 4 million population total. They've taken in 2 million Syrian refugees. Half their population. They don't even have schools for them. They can't feed them. So he has this guy, Mohammed Yamut, one of their one of their evangelists, and you notice his name is Muhammad. He was he was a, 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 a born in Islam. His father left his mom. He was on the streets, and a church started feeding him, and and he started coming to church for the food, and he heard about Jesus. His family had Muslim scholars in it. And when he was 14 years old, they sent him away with the Muslim scholars, and he would go between his Christianity that had been taught and what what Islam taught him. And he came to the conclusion that there is no hope in Islam. It's only in Jesus. So Muhammad Yamut trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. And this guy, he, he's fearless. He says, God will take care of me. He said, it may take a million Christian martyrs to win, is, to, to win Muslims and Islam to Christ. But he said, God will take care of me. And he, this guy street preach, preaches. And right now, he's, he's in, he's in uh, 
Tyre, Lebanon, which is like 97% Muslim. He, he is in uh, Tripoli, um, uh, Lebanon. He's in Amman, Jordan. And, and you should see the crowds. These crowds, you, you have these, these women in black, these Shiite, Shiite women in black sitting in the auditorium sprinkled in and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. He has one church that, that is right across from a mosque. And though the people, the workers in the mosque come to his church, he has Al-Qaeda, they have, I mean, there's a picture of Brother Esau baptizing an Al-Qaeda guy. These Muslims are trusting Christ. They come to Brother Esau and they say, Brother they say, tell us what you have. Islam is killing us. We need something more. And I get on the phone, I have, I have Yamud, Muhammad Yamud on the phone. Larry, when can you do this for us, what you're doing? He said, I can't be over there and over here too. When? When are you going to do this? Individuals are supporting me. The churches of Jesus need to be doing this. He has, he has children that are war orphans that he's trying to feed. And they, they, it, and then I, I was with, Brother Isa, this past weekend, talking about how we can start by God's grace. I mean, we don't have anything. We, we, we just don't have anything. God's going to have to provide it. But I believe God's going to do it. So we, I mean, we, I'm, I'm sitting with Brother Isa and he says, yeah, we have a missionary in Syria. Did you hear me? I'm thinking, a missionary in Syria? And he has a picture. He flashes this picture up. And they have a church still in Syria. There is an independent Baptist church in Syria that hasn't run. There is a missionary, and all that, all that church and that missionary are getting, and they're starving. All they're getting is $800 a month. All Brother Isa can raise. Did you hear me? We have an independent Baptist church in Syria. Winning Muslims to Christ. Can you believe that? I'm just, I, I'm floored. We need to be there. We, we need, I mean, as Americans, if there is a place where we need to be, it is there. I'm talking about support. I didn't even know about this guy. And he's there. When Syria calms down, all these people have left. Can you imagine the opportunity of a church of the Lord Jesus Christ in Syria to start caring for Muslims? I mean, it goes on and on. Brother, brother, brother Mohammed was telling me, he was saying, hey, you know, and this happens in most of the rest of the world. When you're in the hospital and your, your loved one has had a procedure, in this case, this guy's wife had had a baby, they don't let you out. They have a holding place. They don't let you out till the bill is paid in full. I mean, that happens in a lot of the world. So this, this, this Muslim new father comes to his neighbor down the street, you know, this, this Christian preacher guy, Mohammed, I mean, just having the name Mohammed means you're a target as a, as a Christian. And this guy is out there. He's just, I mean, they, they but he, he comes down the street to Mohammed and he says, uh, listen, my, my wife's in the hospital and I can't, uh, I can't get her out. Can you help me? He said, how much you need? He said, $200. He said, well, Jesus just gave me $200, and I wondered who it was for. It's for you. Here, here's your $200 that Jesus gave me to give to you. Do you believe Jesus can do that? I mean, I was, during Hurricane Ike, I, I was on city council, Mayor Pro Tem in our city, and I had, I had uh, 
I was in charge of all the NGOs coming in, and this pocket was for cash that people would give me. They'd come up and say, Larry, give this to somebody in need. It was absolutely amazing. Somebody would walk up to me and say, hey, man, I'm out of gasoline. My generator's chewing up all this gas, and I, I don't have enough cash, and, and I can't get back on the job. I'd say, listen, Jesus is taking care of it. How much you need? And it always, there was always enough. Just take it out of my pocket and give to him. When it was over, it was gone. There's a God. This, after Jesus gave this man $200, this Muslim, he came back to Brother Muhammad and he said, You have a cross? And I can't do the brogue. My voice is about gone. I've been singing all day, afternoon services, and this morning. And, and, and do you have a cross? And Muhammad said, What do you want with a cross? He said, I want a big cross. I want a big cross with a necklace on it that I can wear right here. What? I mean, you think that's a target, don't you? And this is what he said. We Baptists say no crosses, and I understand all that. But this guy, he doesn't know about all this stuff. He says, I want a cross right here so all my family and my neighbors can know that when I had a need, Islam's God didn't come to my aid, but this God, Jesus, came to my aid. I want them to know this. This guy hasn't trusted Christ. I mean, this, this stuff is, is going on. When we said that we were going to do this, when, when by God's grace we're going to open up at, at Rogers, missionaries were in line. I had pastors in line over here this, this last August, and I had missionaries in line over here. And y'all, y'all know Brother Bandaru, been a faithful servant of Christ. In fact, this is Solomon Rayo. You know Solomon Rayo. This is his daughter. I knew her when she was a little bitty at Independent Baptist College. I shouldn't say that stuff. She's a grandmother. Here I am saying that. I knew her when she's a little bitty. I'm, uh, the pastor told me, he said, uh, you're well-preserved recently. Anyway, uh, she came, they came to me standing, standing right here, tears coming down in her face because of this. In India, a Hindu male can divorce his wife and their, his children by her put them out on the streets and she cannot remarry. Which in their culture, she can't, I mean, job is non-existent. He can remarry. So there are literally thousands and thousands of women and children on the streets with no hope. And she said, we fed 400 of these children the week before we came back. And it's all the money we had. And she said, they're open to the gospel. And she's weeping and she's saying, we've been praying. I mean, we've been praying that God would open a door among independent Baptists so we can do this. But we can't come back and do deputation for this. It's the same scenario. I mean, they're they're covered up. They're they're just our missionaries. A missionary in West Africa comes. He says, listen, I sleep where I sleep. He says there are children within a hundred yards sleeping on the street. And our missionaries, they have to stand there with their hands in their pockets. Because we're, it, it's, a, it's a dual thing. Our missionaries are seeing it. Those churches are seeing it. But we here in the United States, almsgiving it hardly even exists. It's not in our thinking. And if there's any country that has ever lived on God's earth and ever been blessed by the living God in this present world that should be giving alms, it is Christians in the United States of America. And my independent Baptist brethren in particular. I want you to get this clear. I'm not here talking about missions giving. By all means, give to missions. I'm talking about almsgiving. A New Testament and Old Testament doctrine. 
And, the, and, and they're saying to me, this, this missionary in West Africa, I was sitting across a table from him just about two years ago, sitting and, he's, and I'm telling him about my burden and all of this, and he's saying, when can you get this done? When are you going to do this? When are you, when are you going to do this? We've got to do this. He told me, he said, and he, he went to West Africa in the 70s. If you don't know where West Africa is, that's where Ebola has been. Okay, and this guy didn't run either. In fact, he, he, when he came back, he went into a clinic. He had a sore throat. He went into one of these new clinic things, and he went in, and the lady at the desk asked him, have you been to West Africa in the last few months? He said, West Africa? I live there. <laughs> she went like, he said, they cleared, the, they cleared the place out. He was saying, no, I don't have, I don't have um, uh, Ebola. <laughs> they cleared the clinic out. And, uh, man, but he said, if, if I would have known what happens when you start helping the poor in a country, he said, I would have been rescuing kids when my feet touched the, touched the soil of that country. Here's what happens. I, I, a pastor was talking to me about this, and he wants to do this locally, too, uh, which I think we should. I told him, I said, hey, man, find, find a restaurant around here. Find a restaurant. Uh, go to the manager and say, hey, listen, our church wants to come to your restaurant and eat, but we want to help. We want to help. One of your waitresses or a waiter. Do you have a waiter or waitress that's just, I mean, struggling to make it? Maybe, maybe a waitress that's going to school and has kids, a single mom. Do you, and and go, go to that restaurant and say, we're going to come and we're going to give them 50% tip when we come in. We want, we want you to pick that. You know what they've done? And this church did it. He, in fact, this pastor, he made it a big deal. He called it the, the great tip out, I think is what he said, or tip off or something. Anyway. And they did it. I mean, they, you, you know how many other people he, he has opportunity now to minister to? The manager. And that manager said, hey, I, we're going to bring the owner into this. I, I never heard anything like this. So he gets the owner over. And a church is actually saying, we care because Jesus cared for us. Can you do this? Oh, yeah, we can do it. They had three waitresses that, that came in. And so, I mean... And you think every waiter and waitress in that whole place now doesn't know about Jesus' work in that church? And this is what he said. He said, when, I, when we started rescuing kids because we had to, and he said, I can't come back on deputation now because we got, an, we got a children's home there. He said, and you just can't walk away from this. And you don't have funds to meet the needs to hire staff. So you're the staff. I mean, and I, I could tell you story after story. The, the, of this stuff. I mean, they have an orphanage right now in Ghana where the kids eat a handful of rice a day. He was able to raise enough to where they can now eat. Uh, and this is a missionary out of a mission in, in, this, in this unbelievably horrible place. So they feed the kids a handful of rice a day and they go back out on the streets to beg. I, so they're saying, do this. So this is what we're doing. I mean, this is, this is what uh, Carol and I are doing. We, we already have the network all over the world. The network's there. We've been planting churches for 200 years. There are more Baptist churches. This is just kind of a network picture I got off the net, but if it were true, there are actually more Baptist churches in Africa than there are in Canada. The churches are there. If, I, if we were doing a parachurch organization, if I were starting a parachurch organization, I'd be in trouble because parachurch organizations, and God bless them, except for, I mean, I'm not criticizing them, except for paying CEOs $400,000 a year when you're actually taking care of people in poverty. And they say, well, we've got to get good employees. Well, when it comes to Christianity, you don't have to buy good employees. You just don't. 
But what they have to do, they have to, they have to because they're a non-church organization, they have to get offices, they have to have staff. It's called administrative costs. That runs, generally, the standard is for human services, for actually taking care, taking care of people, from about 12% to 30% in administration costs. So they have buildings, they have all that, and then they have to go to where the, the point of need, which is where the poverty actually is. And I have a missionary friend who told me he got a phone call from another missionary that he knew. He said, can you take care of these people? They're from an organization in the United States, which I know the organization. They have an income of between 300 and $500 million a year. And I can tell you a whole lot about the culture and the way this stuff's going on. It's, it's absolutely amazing what's going on. But they, they, they bring these gringos. And, do, am I a gringo? I mean, I got green eyes like a cat. I walk into these places where people are this tall, and they're all brown, and I glow. <laughs> and when I walk into a city uh, or a town where it's, it is horrible poverty, guess who I am? I'm the rich American come to give them some money. And they're thinking an ATM, you know, one of these, just like an ATM, boy. We come and we sit down, and they're not stupid. We Americans think that just because somebody's in another country and they have a different color of skin than we do, that they're idiots. They're not. They know. So he says, they're coming as, so they come in this van. They're from the, this, this huge organization here in the U.S., and they're looking for places to give the money out, trying to find a church or something or a non-church organization. So they have to find a place to give the money out. And I'm all for them taking care of the poor. I'm not, but this is, this is the way it goes. So he has to take them around so they can find some place to dump their buckets of money. As independent Baptists, we do things a little bit different. The network's already in place. We don't have to build anything. Churches are the, mo- are the least used buildings in the country. Rogers Baptist Church has stepped up and, and they have said, we want to build, and we actually have the name Baptist Charities. We have, don't go to the website. We don't have it up yet. I mean, we're just starting. I'm just here. We don't have anything. We're, we've, we've got a little bit of money to start a website, and I'm going on perpetual deputation uh, to do what we're, we're proposing to do here. But we have BaptistCharities.org. We have BaptistCharities.care. It's church-based. We're not appealing to the public. We're appealing to the Lord's churches where you can give you can write a check out to Baptist Charity, send it to Rogers Baptist Church, and not nine cent, 90 cents on the dollar gets there. A hundred. Our goal is 100% goes through. So people ask me, well, what about you, Brother Jones? And, and it comes up, so I'm going to answer it right off the bat because it's important. We, what, we're, what we're seeking God's face to do is that any of our administration cost comes off of love offerings and services like this. If you, if you give me a check, I'm not going to put it in my pocket. I'm not going to put it in my bank. I'm going to send it to Rogers Baptist Church. They're going to put it in our work account, which is our administration, and we're going to try to operate in, in our administration. And I am within the, within the salaried structure of Rogers Baptist Church. So you have one of the Lord's churches saying, we're willing to step up. And we're willing to commit to do, we have a secretary that's committed to doing this. We're willing to give what is necessary for our sister churches to be able to write checks through their churches, just like they do to missions. If you want to give to the poor, you write a check and then you know that it comes to Rogers Baptist Church and we, get, we send it to Hillcrest Baptist Church who oversees. Now think about this. 
if this, this van load of people, they come in and they have to have a place where they can dump their money, they have to have accountability structures, they have to train people, they're already in place. Hillcrest Baptist Church is responsible for Abdu Isa in Lebanon and all of the ancillary ministries that are there. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We give them the check and say, this is to go to people in poverty. We've already discussed it with them. They know what's going on in their own ministry. They make their ministers accountable. And the structure's in place. And 100%, this is unheard of, 100% gets to Lebanon, gets to Syria, gets to West Africa. This can be done. It can be done. And I, and I, I can't imagine it not being done from what people tell me um, in all the churches. So here's our proposal, and I know it's late. Uh, stay with me just a little bit more. And you've been very kind. You've stayed with me. Here's our proposition, that we represent the poor, that this is what I do. Have I represented the poor tonight? A class of people who need care. Have I done that? That's, that's what we propose. So I go on perpetual deputation. Pray for me that I don't turn in eating Baptist food into the big blimp of a preacher going around trying to raise funds for the poor. And we had dinner on the grounds today where I was. So I'm serious. Pray for me to represent the poor, to, to revive almsgiving among the Lord's churches. To where over and above what you do in your local church, you give to alms to the poor. To strengthen the hands of missionaries and churches to reach the destitute. That they are pleading with us to do. And to assist people displaced by disaster or war. If you're wondering about refugees, Jesus was a refugee when he went to Egypt. He was running from political and governmental persecution. Our own Savior was a refugee. So we propose to do this in the spirit of our Lord and Savior in 2 Corinthians 8 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Some might think that this is just some kind of a pitch. This isn't any pitch. This is Christianity. This is where, this is where in my life so much has changed down through the years when God faces me with something. It's where the struggle of Christianity is. And I have to tell you, if I don't have a struggle in my soul with what I possess and what even my brothers and sisters in Christ, like in Syria, don't possess and what they're going through, if I don't have that struggle, I'm not saying I'm going to be perfect with this. I struggle. Disabled wife, I mean, i got to take care of her. We have all the struggles. All of us do, but it, but it needs to be a struggle. And I don't believe that it is where it needs to be in our souls. We've got to have this struggle. So the, the struggle needs to be there. I mean, how do, you, how do you have an invitation on something like this? Everybody do a Zacchaeus. Come up here and say you're going to give half of what you possess to the poor. I mean, what do you, how, how do you deal with this? It's not an instantaneous thing. It's like I talked about with the children's home. Don't stop supporting the children's home, by the way. This isn't a replacement. We're feeding kids. I mean, this church, your church, every dime you send goes for Amazing Grace Children's Home. Every dime you send, you've been putting shoes on kids' feet. You've been putting food in their mouths. So, I mean, this, this, is, this is real. But as Brother Rebus says, this is only a drop in the bucket. 
And it is. So we're, we're not, I'm not here to say, hey, listen, start monthly support of $50 a month or something. No. I believe the Lord and His churches will, through the giving of alms, revive something that we have needed revived for decades. A New Testament principle that's been lost. It's not forced. It's, I mean, in the Scripture, it's give as the Lord has prospered you. But where these funds actually go to meet this need, to care for these people. And we and a lot of other people are willing to sacrifice ourselves that this end be met. And I believe, from what has been said, that there are others in the churches. So, you know, when I was a kid, when I first got into Christianity and Brother Stone would come and preach at, at, at the church there at Trinity Baptist in Merriam, Kansas, we had eight tracks then. How many of you all remember eight tracks? What I would do, I'd be in a service like this that he would preach or Jimmy Gilmore would preach or my pastor, Louis Turk, would preach. And God would grip my soul because he wanted me. I was just a kid, but he wanted me. I still don't know why he wanted me. But what I would do, I would do what a lot of Christian people do. I would leave God in the church building, go out and slap one of my uh, tapes and one of my uh, eight tracks into the eight track player, get my Oldsmobile that people don't even know what those are now. You know, get my Oldsmobile and I would lose and get away from what God was doing in my heart. It has been strange to me down through the years as I've walked with my Savior to realize how foolish I am. When He convicts me of something, He's doing it for my benefit, not for my hurt. And if He's convicting you about something, He's doing it for your good, not to harm you. That's the kind of God that He is. Don't walk away from Him. And listen, if you're without Christ here tonight, you're in poverty of soul, the worst poverty that we've talked about. I mean, there's, a, there's an illustration in the Scripture of a, of a poor man in abject poverty. The word is for abject poverty. He, he was laid at a rich man's gate, had sores all over his body. The dogs licked his sores. He couldn't even keep the dogs away from him. And there was a man living in a palatial uh, house that passed him every day. That man went to hell. The rich man did. That, the other man, Lazarus, the poor man, went to heaven. It is more important that you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior if you don't breathe another second. If you live the rest of your life in a home for the homeless here in the U.S. and you go to heaven, you are a million times better off. In fact, the numbers, not, the comparison's not even there in our language than you would have been if you'd have lived in the nicest home this world can give. You need Jesus Christ as your Savior. And let me tell you, I know my Father. I know how much He loves. He's never forsaken me. And He'll not forsake you. Come into the family. We're rich. In our poverty, we are rich. And then, by God's grace... Maybe we'll stand together someday and we'll put our feet on that new earth. And look at our footprint in the soil and laugh that God could save somebody like us and give us this place. Let's stand. Larry, it's about. Father, I, I, I use